0: morning. Okay, uh, we're going to continue today in our series over uh, Paul's letter to the Corinthian church. Uh, we have communion today, so I'm going to make sure I'm not too long-winded. Um, but uh, this is a really awesome section of scripture. I mean, just an amazing section of scripture. But first, let me catch you up. This series is uh, called Address the Mess. Uh, and a mess perfectly describes the Corinthian church because it was a mess. I mean, the Corinthian church had become really carnal and they were immature and as a result, they messed everything up. They didn't know whether they were coming or going. So Paul, who actually helped launch this church, uh, wrote them to address that mess. Meaning he was going to try to address and correct a lot of the problems they had factored into this uh, church through their immaturity and, and through their uh, carnality. So today we'll discuss Paul's teaching in two really important areas. Okay, the first is the judgment seat of Christ, and that's where believers will be judged someday. Okay, because everybody has to stand an account for what they've done, and believers exempt from that. Uh, the second is he's going to teach us how to understand a believer's true identity. Uh, and this is very, very important because he's going to do it with relation to the temple and how they relate to the temple of the Old Testament. Now I titled today's message, The People in the Program of God, uh, because in verses 10 through 17, I mean, Paul discusses God's program for believers, and it, it starts with the, their walk with Christ all the way through their impending judgment that everybody has to face. So there's a lot here. So that being done, quick as I can catch up, let's jump into verse 10. First Corinthians 3, verse 10. He says, "According to the grace of God, which was given to me, like a wise master builder, I laid a foundation, and another is building on it. But each man must be careful how he builds on it." Now, in verses 10 and 11, Paul just uses this brilliant illustration uh, about the foundation uh, of faith and judgment for believers. Now, any contractor will tell you that a building is only as strong as its foundation. I mean, you can build a skyscraper, but if you build it on a beach, it's probably going to fall. I mean, if there's not something solid under it, it's probably going to fall. Now, Jesus used kind of a similar illustration in Matthew's Gospel, and I want to kind of show you the similarities. If you look at Matthew 7:24. 24, it says, Therefore, everyone who hears uh, these words of mine and acts on them may be, can- may be compared to a wise man who built his house on the rock." And the rain fell, and the flood came, and the winds blew and slammed against the house, and yet it did not fall, for it had been founded on the rock. Now, obviously, the wind and the rain and the flood represents the challenges that come at us every day as believers. And if you've been a believer longer than a day, you know you're going to get hit with challenges. You're going to get hit with difficulties and struggles. The enemy doesn't take a day off. Uh, and so that's what the wind and the rain and the, and the floods represented. And Jesus was basically teaching his followers that those who have a foundation in God be able to withstand the challenges that the enemy throws at them. And he was also teaching them that if you want to build a successful ministry on that foundation, you have to make sure that you're using quality products, meaning doing it based on the principles uh, of God's Word. So he kind of compares the contractor in his illustration using cheap versus quality uh, materials. Because those who build with quality materials, when that structure is tested by the winds and the flood, it'll make it. right. But those who use the cheap materials will have... Uh, Know, their structure won't endure the wounds and the rain and the The cheap one reminds me of my house because evidently, whoever built it was blind in the first time doing it. Anyway, now, uh, so I get that, but there's a reference uh, to building an effective personal and corporate ministry here. This, that's what this was. It referenced both because those who build a ministry with quality pro- uh, you know products, if you will, like faith and love, compassion and obedience, they're going to build that spiritual maturity and they're going to be able to withstand when the struggles come on them because they're going to be getting closer to God. But those who try to build a ministry lacking the principles God tells us we should live by, like grace and faith and love, uh, they're just not going to be able to stand when they're tried. I don't know if you've noticed this, but when you're angry or when you're out of the will of God, everything knocks you off course. Have you notice that? Everything knocks you off course. And that's what they are trying to say here. Listen, if you want to be able to face the difficulties he throws at you, you've got to make sure that you are building your spiritual structure, your spiritual personal structure, with quality products. And that's the things that Jesus told us to build our lives on. So like Jesus, Paul was also illustrating the importance of a strong spiritual foundation. It's very, very similar. But whether it's a church uh, or a believer's life, without a strong foundation, it's going to crumble. It's just going to crumble. I've seen churches go up quickly and grow quickly and fall just as quick. Because they were built on things that, that... God didn't list his principles that were important to make a church succeed. They were just things that brought people in. That's, that's not going to work. You have If a church is going to be sustained and not crumble, it's going to have to be done in God's way. And by crumble, I mean it will be unable to remain effective when the difficulties uh, hit them. So Paul also used this illustration on the importance of building an effective ministry, just like Jesus, using quality materials. But we'll discuss that later on in this message. Now, the word wise, this is where it gets pretty interesting. The word wise in verse 10 is from the Greek word sophos, and it means skilled or an expert. It means skilled or an expert. So Paul used that word to emphasize a couple things. First of all, he was emphasizing that he had the experience and the expertise necessary to build a church, to establish a new church the way it should be established. right? And like any skilled contractor, his training and experience is what made him wise. That's why he was mentioning it. And so that's why Paul began by reminding uh, then that his expertise came from God. Look at one Corinthians three ten, just the first part. It says according to the grace of God. Notice immediately he says this isn't about me, but because I've been empowered by God's grace, according to the grace of God which was given to me, like a wise master builder I laid a foundation. Now the foundation that that both Paul and Jesus referred to is spiritual. It's not physical. One thing you have to be careful about in the scriptures is the. But it's pretty. It's pretty plain about when it when it's being you know, literal and when it figures. okay? This is not talking about a literal, physical foundation, it's a spiritual foundation. And if anyone was wise enough to lay a spiritual foundation, it's going to be the Apostle Paul, because he's probably the greatest apostle, at least arguably, in my opinion, uh, that walks across the pages of the scripture. Now, how did he build this strong foundation? It's really simple. It wasn't Gimmick. okay? It wasn't because he had experts come in and teaching how to read an audience, Okay? He built this strong foundation by sticking to the Word of God and being unwavering and unpopular. That's how he built it, and that's the only way you can build one. Now, the purpose of that foundation was twofold. First, it was to help the Corinthians build a strong church. It probably, you know, rebuild, because I think they started off there, but rebuild a strong church that was Christ-centered and effective, right? And the second was to help believers kind of do the same thing personally, to build a strong personal walk with God. That was kind of his, his meaning behind this, this section. But Paul then said that others would build on that foundation. Okay? Others would build on that foundation just as he had built on it when he started. Uh, By saying this, he was trying to emphasize the importance of of unity in a church and duty. He was saying that everyone has a purpose in God's program. And everyone has an opportunity in God's program if they're willing to take it. It's a lot like a contractor. Uh, The contractor, the guy himself, the head contractor, doesn't do everything. He... As a general contractor, generally, he, he assigns work. Some do the concrete, some do the framing, some do the roofing, some do the finished work, and so on. And it's really similar to what Paul's trying to teach here. Everybody has an opportunity if they would just do it. If they would, Last week, he kind of discussed that. Look at 6 through 9. Verse 6 through 9. He says, I planted, Apollos watered, seed of his Job, but God was causing the growth. So then neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything, but God who causes the growth. Now, he who plants and he who waters are one, but each will receive his own reward according to his own labor. That's kind of setting us up for this week. Verse 9, for we are God's fellow workers, you are God's field, God's building. Right? Now, in verses 6 through 9, the importance of embracing your specific ministry is what he's really putting out there. But after saying that, jumping into this week, he has this stern warning. Okay, starting in verse 10, he has this stern warning. Let's look at the second part of verse 10. It says, but each man must be careful how he builds on it. So it's saying that someone else is going to build on this foundation. Okay, I laid the foundation. It's someone else's job to build on it. But he's saying you have to be careful. And this is kind of referring back to those quality materials that Jesus was talking about. Meaning anyone who builds on this foundation still had to use quality materials. See, I think sometimes we think that once we get saved, that's all we have to do. Once we become a believer, our obligation is is finished. And that's not the case. We have a ministry. We have a purpose. And we need to be careful to make sure we're building that purpose every opportunity you get. A strong foundation. Here's the thing. A strong foundation is enough to get you to heaven. It's not enough to get you blessed and rewarded. Okay? That's something we have to remember. Because even a, the strongest foundation won't keep a poorly built structure from collapsing. Okay? If it's poorly built, it's going to collapse. you believers in churches can't live in opposition to God and still expect to be blessed. Just because God is their foundation, they still have a responsibility. Because we forget God's salvation is free, but His blessings and rewards require work. They're conditional. You can be saved, and yes, that's a blessing, and never receive another blessing until you enter heaven because you didn't earn or work for one, right? Those are two different things. The believers in churches still need to know they have to teach, live, teach and live the Word of God if they're going to be successful. Now in verse 11, Paul was quick to remind them that there was one spiritual foundation you look at this, it says, For no man can lay a foundation other than the one which is laid, which is what? Jesus Christ. So he's saying the foundation is Jesus Christ. Now, that verse is how we know they're talking to believers. Verse 11 is how we know this whole section is talking to believers. Because only believers have God as their foundation or Christ as their foundation and can build on it. Unbelievers cannot say that Christ is their foundation. And they certainly can't build on a foundation they don't have. So we know that this is talking to believers, right? And in verses 12 and 13, Paul's going to describe what judgment looks like uh, for the faithful and unfaithful believers, because both of them will be judged. And he does so, again, by using these illustrations of someone building structures. So let's look at this, verses 12 and 13. It says, Now if any man builds on a foundation of gold, silver, precious stones, wood, and hay, each man's work will become evident. For the day will show it, because it is to be revealed with fire, and the fire itself will test the quality of each man's work. Now, in Jesus' illustration, it was water, wind, flood, pounding against a structure that would test the quality of the build. Here, it's fire. He's saying fire will test the quality of the product that are used. He's saying whatever it is that you're using the build with, if you're trying to be cheap and cheese out and not do it the right way, God's judgment will reveal it, right? So if you look in verses 14 and 15, he kind of goes a little bit deeper. He said, if any man's work which he has built on remains, okay? Now, remember, he's saying... If it's built of hay and wood versus precious stones and gold, okay? If any man's work which he has built on remains, he will receive a reward. If any man's work is burned up, he will suffer loss. Now, underscore this if you follow along. He will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved, yet so as through fire. I love this section. Okay, this is talking about something called the Bema Seat of Judgment, or the Judgment Seat of Christ is what it's actually, the, the literal term is, but it's referred to often as the Bema Seat of Judgment. Now the bema seat was a raised platform in ancient Athens uh, with a lectern on it, and they would they use it for two main purposes. Uh, the ancient Greeks would first make uh, public announcements important public announcements from that bema seat, that, that elevated platform with a lectern on it. And the other thing they used it for was judges would give athletes their rewards for winning a competition when they were and they would hand those rewards out at the bema seat of judges. Okay, and that's really really important. Because that's how they're relating it to the judgment seat of Christ, and that really explains what the judgment seat of Christ is. See, back then, sporting events were really popular. I hate it when people say, "Well, I ain't got time for sports," but I am just focused on the Bible. I am like, "Wow, that sounds so spiritual," but it isn't. Okay, the Apostle Paul was a big sports fan. You can go too far with anything, right? But sports was huge back then because there wasn't a lot of entertainment available to them. All right, this is really important. There was no video games. There was no social media. Praise God. There was no reality TV again, praise God. I mean, they had to actually entertain themselves using this thing that's called creativity, right? That's how they entertained themselves. And so what they would do is they watched a lot of sporting events, and they held a lot of sporting events, and they loved to go watching. And the winners of those sporting events would be given a laurel, a crown of laurels, which is just a flower crown, basically. And they would uh, go to the Bayma seat, and the winners would have the laurels placed on their head. Now, if they didn't train the next year and came back lazy and lost, they would say, well, they lost because they just rested on their laurels. Meaning they didn't—they—they they took for granted that they were just going to win again because they won last year and they didn't train as hard. They rested on their laurels and they lost. That's what, the ju- that's what he's equating the judgment seat of Christ to. Now, the judgment seat of Christ, again, is where believers are judged according to their works. Okay, and I'll explain this more as we move on. But the timing of this is this happens right after the rapture and the seven-year tribulation. So after the rapture and seven-year tribulation, but before the millennial kingdom, in that span, that's where believers will be judged. Okay? Now, it's really important you understand, these believers are not being judged with regard to heaven and hell here. That's not why they're being judged. Okay? The moment they believe they have eternal life, they're going to heaven. But the ultimate reward for a Jew was to be able to serve in the promised millennial kingdom where the Messiah would reign on earth. That was the ultimate goal for a Jew. That was the blessing they all wanted. Well, this judgment is to see if you lived a life faithful enough for God to be able to reward you with being able to serve in the Millennial Kingdom under Christ himself. A major, major blessing. Those who those who didn't serve faithfully, and we'll look at this more in detail as we move on, kind of getting a shotgun version, but those who didn't live faithfully, they still get to enter the millennial kingdom. They still get to go to heaven. They just can't serve in the kingdom. It's kind of like being on a team but sitting on the bench the whole time. Okay? That's exactly what this is talking about. The unfaithful get to watch the faithful serve Christ for a thousand years. Now, I have people tell me that's not that big of a deal. I'm like, evidently, you've never played sports. It's a huge deal. When you practice as hard as everybody else, that you sit the bench. That's what's happening here, except they didn't practice as hard as everybody else. They have to trip the bed. That's what's happening with this. So all these illustrations, let me just kind of explain what they mean here. A faithful believer who serves God with pure motives will withstand judgment, just like the structure that's built correctly will withstand judgment, right? Actually, he'll be blessed and will be allowed to serve in the Millennial Kingdom. Now, the unfaithful believer will be denied the ability to reign in the Millennial Kingdom, but they will still retain their place in heaven and the bench in the Millennial Kingdom because heaven is a gift that results from instantaneous faith in Jesus' sacrifice. Remember, becoming a believer can't be about anything but what Jesus did. It has to be about just that. Alright, and I'm thankful because thankfully going to heaven has nothing to do with our work. Just faith alone. Because I'm going to be honest with you, if it had to do with living righteously every day, I would be going to hell still. And so would you. I'm just not going to make you raise your hands and admit it. Right? We all sin. Thankfully, it has nothing to do with our work. Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. I'll try to squeeze this any time I can. It says, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and that what? Not of yourself, It is what? It is the gift of God. You don't work for a gift. How many of your kids look under the tree and go, what do I got to do to open it for them? They don't do that. They run, grab it, rip it open. That's what salvation is, right? Verse 9, not as a result of work so that no, so that no one may boast. Very, very important. When people tell me, well, you still have to do good works if you're not going to heaven, I go, no, you don't. You have to do that to be blessed. I had a guy tell me one time, I'll never forget this, we were driving in a truck so I couldn't jump out and run away. And he said, I can't believe these churches that teach that you have eternal life just by believing. I'm like, he's one of them. He goes, the Bible plain says that you have to work to go to heaven. And I couldn't stay quiet anymore. I mean, that might not shock you, but I said... That's ridiculous. The Bible actually says the polar opposite of that. It literally doesn't say what you said anywhere in the Scripture. It says you're not saved by words. Ephesians 2, 8, 9, uh, 2 Timothy 1, 9, it's all over the Scripture. That, I'm so thankful that that's the case. So this judgment seat isn't about losing your salvation or anything about, like that. It's about being rewarded in the kingdom. So what did Paul mean when he said, you know, some would suffer loss in verse 15? Let's look at that. First Corinthians three fifteen says, if any man's work is burned up, now remember he said that so the works that are good are gold, you know, precious stones. The works that are not good are the impure motives are made from very flammable products, wood, hay, straw, right? says, if any man's work is burned up, he will suffer loss. But listen, underscore this, but he will be saved yet so as through his fire. Okay, very, very important. Because the loss an unfaithful believer suffers at the judgment seat of Christ it's just talking about the loss of the ultimate reward. We talked about being able to serve in the kingdom. It says, "But he himself will be saved, yet so as through fire," meaning they're still saved. I think that's pretty obvious. So even though they won't reign in the kingdom, they'll still go to heaven. Now in the Greek, it's actually this is actually poorly translated in almost every English translation you find. It's, it's just poorly translated here. It's not the way the Greek reads. Uh, in the Greek, this reads a little different, and honestly, it's uh, more clearly First Corinthians 3:15. Here's how it should read. If any man's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved like one who is escaping a fire. If you read it in the Greek, that's what it says. And doesn't that make more sense? As though someone, you know, like one who is escaping a fire. So let me give you two different ways uh, of saying what Paul's trying to say here. First of all, because Jesus promised eternal life to all believers, even uh, the unfaithful believer is guaranteed heaven, even if they have no kingdom in the world. That's one way to say what he's saying but to sum it all up would be the unfaithful will go to heaven but will not be allowed to reign in, uh, with Jesus in the kingdom because they walk so close to the line uh, through their disobedience they'll get there smelling like the flames of hell that, that uh, faith alone delivered them from that's basically what he's saying so he's saying those people who do nothing right? they won't get a reign in the kingdom but they will enter heaven smelling like brimstone basically because you walk that close to the line but they themselves will be saved Now, eternal security is taught all throughout the scriptures. And people always say, why do they teach that? To make people lazy? No, they teach that to empower people with the grace of God. To let you know that he knows we're screw-ups. I mean, in basic terms. He knows that's the best we'll ever be. We might become a better screw-up than we are today, but we're always going to be a screw-up. That's why it's taught. Eternal security is just a fundamental biblical principle, and you see it all over the scriptures. And knowing that you can't reject God enough or you can't uh, be disobedient enough to lose your, your promise of heaven, that should empower us, shouldn't it? Doesn't that make you feel good, knowing that he's not going to abandon you? Right? That should be empowering. I, I think the Apostle Paul described the same reward concept in Second Timothy. Look at this. Second Timothy two eleven through 13 i got to watch myself. I love this verse. I love this verse. It says, It is a trustworthy statement. If we died with him we will also what? We will also live with him. If we endure, we will also what? Reign with him. If we deny him, he will also what? Deny us. If we are faithless, here's the crux of these three verses. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. Now, these verses are so important, I'm going to break them down really quickly, okay? It says, if we die with him, we will also live with him. This is a reference to becoming a believer. Because when we believe, the old man passes away, the new man is created. So we are born again. We have died. The old man has died. The new man has risen. So when it says, if we have died with him, we will also live with him, this is talking about becoming a believer. It says, if we endure with him, we will also reign with him. This is talking about the people who build with the right product. They have the right work, the right attitude. They will have the ability to reign in the kingdom. But it says, if we deny him, he will also deny us. Now, the people who believe to lose their salvation get all giddy when they hear that, because they think that's the only verses there. And they say, for if we deny him, he will also deny us. Deny us what? Well, what's the context? He'll so deny us the ability to reign in the kingdom. We lose the ultimate reward being able to reign in the kingdom. And then it, to make sure nobody screwed this up, he adds this last verse, if we are faithless, he remains faithful. For he cannot deny himself. I I love what he's saying here. I I love what he's saying here. Basically what he's saying is, listen, even though you're a screw-up, and even though you haven't been faithful, and you may not get rewarded with being able to reign in the kingdom, that may be the case. But he can never deny you entrance into heaven. Because each believer has the Holy Spirit living within them the moment they believe. And it stays there. For him to deny a believer entrance into heaven, he would have to deny the Holy Spirit who is in them which is a part of the triune Godhead of which Jesus is a part Father, Son Holy Spirit to deny a believer even a faithless one to become faithless for whatever reason would be denying himself because a part of him is in you. it's like a parent trying to deny, deny their own you know bloodborn child you can deny all you want DNA will prove who the daddy is watch Maury Polis you find that out right so I'm just saying listen Now, uh, in verses 16 and 17, Paul follows up his discussion uh, on faithfulness with a little bit of encouragement. Look at this. Verse 316. Do you not know that you are a temple of God and the Spirit of God dwells in you? Man, am I excited to preach this session. You'll see why here in just a minute. Okay, the words you are in the Greek are different than the way they're translated here. It's the Greek word "amen," Not amy, the name, amy. Right? And it's actually a plural. This is not a singular. Okay? So Paul was talking corporately to all believers in general here. It should read, you know, you are. Instead of you are, it should be you all. The way I think of it is like this other one. y'all. That's what he's saying. Okay? You could replace that and actually put it together right. Okay? In this context, when he's talking about the body being the temple, he's talking about the body of the church. Okay? And verse 16 should actually read as follows. Uh, do you not know that you all, talking to the Corinthian church, that you all are a temple of God, and that the Spirit of God what dwells in you? Very important. So you have a, you are a temple of God, or different variations of that is mentioned nine times in the New Testament, right? Nine times in the New Testament, and in 1 Corinthians 3:16, it's referring to the church, but it's based on the identity of believers. Okay, in chapter 6, the same letter, First Corinthians, Paul addressed the individual believer being a temple. Look at this, First Corinthians 6, starting in verse 18. It says, Flee immorality. Every other sin that a man commits is outside of the body. But the immoral man sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is what? A temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and that you are not your own. Okay, so it is used both ways, corporately and individually. But it's based on the fact that every believer is a temple that houses the Holy Spirit. Now, a lot of people, sadly, but a lot of people misinterpret these references uh, to a believer's body being the temple. They, they, they mess it up. Somehow, they always assume it's referring to physically caring for the physical body. Anybody ever ran into that person? They're saying, oh, you eat mayonnaise. Well, the body's a temple. You shouldn't eat that. I'm like, that, that's, that's not what it's talking about. Okay, that's actually a gross misinterpretation because these are all spiritual references when it's referring to the temple. It's us being a temple, the church being a temple. It's a spiritual reference. Let me explain how that came about. Okay? In the Old Testament, people would go to the temple of God to experience the presence of God. That's where they experienced it. They weren't indwelt with the Holy Spirit yet. So if they want to experience the presence of God, they went to the temple, offered their sacrifices, because they felt that that's where the presence of God existed. Okay, But in the New Testament, there's no need for a temple. The veil of the temple was torn in two, because now every believer houses the Holy Spirit. Now we are the temple of God. So wherever a believer is, there is also a temple of God, because the Holy Spirit lives in there. So when believers come together, no matter where it is, no matter what the location, no matter if there's a, a building which is not necessary or a location, a field, whatever, right, wherever they meet, they are in the presence of God because each one of them contains the presence of God within them. That is so, so important. So in essence, I mean, believers now serve the same purpose the Old Testament temple did. We are the temple or the housing of the Holy Spirit of God. And when people want to experience God, if they don't know Him, we should be able to bring Him to them. We should be able to do that. That's what it's talking about there. Now, one thing to consider these references are not talking about giving up fried food. Okay? They're not talking about giving up mayonnaise. I'll never forget, I shouldn't even tell this story, but I'm, I'm missing a focus. There was this guy who comes up to a lady who was really kind to quit smoking. good Christian woman, she struggled with smoking. Right? And some of you can understand that. And, uh, this guy walked up to her. I was standing by her. I was stunned at the self-righteous stupidity. This guy walked up to her, and he says, You know, the body's a temple, and you're destroying it. He said, If you give that to Jesus, he'd take them from you. She didn't say a word. She was crushed. Because she was already paranoid about it. She was already trying to quit for her own health. And here comes Captain Judge Miller. This guy was like 80 pounds overweight. So I couldn't help myself. I said, you know, if you'd give Jesus the extra food that made you put on those pounds, he'd probably take it too. He goes, you got to eat. I said, not eight helpings, you don't. Know? And he just looked at me and walked away. You know why? That is a dumb illustration, going after somebody. First of all, it's not our right to judge anybody. Second of all, using the temple to try to prove that point, you're just, you know, reading somebody else's mail there. That's not talking about taking... The Bible actually says, and everybody who hates exercising remembers this, Bodily exercise profits little. Whenever my wife says we ought to take a walk, I'm like, hold up. Before you diss my, you know my program of working out, which consists of running to the fridge. Before you do that, understand this is biblical for me not. It never works, but I give it a shot anyway. All right, now I'll go off that rant before I get in trouble. Okay, in verse 17, Paul describes what happens to those who try to destroy the church or the temple. Now, this is really, really important. This is really important. In 1 Corinthians 3.17, it says, If any man destroys the temple of God, God will what? You can say that out loud. God will what? Destroy him. For the temple of God is holy, and that is what you are. So... We know that in chapter three, talking about the temple is talking about believers gathering together in the church, the big feature. Uh, and the reference to the body in the temple is corporate. You okay, see, that's what we know. We've already seen that. So this is what he's addressing. He's saying that people whose unfaithful practices threaten the ministries of a church will be destroyed. That's what he's talking about here, right? And and I'm telling you. There's so many behaviors that threaten the church, and there's so many people that say, I would never do anything to threaten the church. I would never do that. That's absolutely wrong. We'll get to that in a minute. Okay, so what this is referring to when it says if you destroy the temple, God will destroy you, it's talking about temporal judgment. If you're trying to destroy the church with your actions and attitudes, then you're going to fall under God's discipline. That's what he's saying. And. God's discipline has several degrees of severity from the loss of prayer power and a, and a closeness to God uh, and prof- all the way to professional and financial loss, even as far as the loss of health and life. That's how severe it can get. So it's talking about those who are trying to destroy a church. But I hear people all the time saying, I would never dream of destroying a church. So would you? Think about this for a second. The church can be destroyed by the following actions and attitudes, and I'm not going to list them all because we'd be here all day. Okay? Greed will destroy a church, and that includes lacking the generosity or desire to support your church. Gossip, pot-stirring, backstabbing. We never see that in church, do we? You know, that will destroy a church faster than anything. Anything. I I, I better stop because I can preach on that forever. But I will tell you this much. I would rather have a church full of of people who know that they're messed up and need help than a bunch of self-righteous gossips and potters and backstabbers. I'll leave it with that. Another thing that destroys churches is power struggles, pride, a refusal to respect and submit to authority. All those things will destroy a church. Uh, Abandoning the teachings and practices of the Word of God will destroy a church. Especially when you're doing it to be politically correct or to pander uh, to the secular world, that can destroy a church. God will not bless that, right? His his word never changes. And the list goes on on and on. But um, it all comes down to this. If you're not working to lift up the church, you may just be working to tear it down. And that's something we've got to be looking at, and it's what Paul was basically trying to get to there. Now, um, we're going to have communion now, and we have uh, the praise team coming up. Uh, We do communion a little differently. uh, We're not as formal because it was supposed to be a time of joy. It wasn't supposed to be solitude. It's where you celebrate the sacrifice Jesus made to symbolic the body and blood of Christ. So when you come to take the sacrament, make sure that you don't have to be solemn, you can talk, you can take your sacrament, just have a thankful heart and remember that God did this for you. we should honor it. And my blood stop